Well, good morning. It's nice to see you here. It's a great privilege to be able to bring the word to you this morning. I am convinced that Nate really loves me because he goes out of town so I can preach a sermon on money and uh, what you're supposed to do with it. <clears throat> so um, there's always a little bit of a trepidation when you come and you preach the word. You're afraid that it's going to totally bomb and it's going to be a meaningless and useless sermon. But there's a little bit of comfort in the fact that um, our whole liturgy today has been an exposition of this passage. And uh, that's a testament to, to Greg and the thoughtful way that he puts together the music and the prayers and the scriptures. And so really, I would just encourage you to meditate on that. Uh, go home this afternoon, read back through it. Um, we've tackled this passage already in a lot of different ways. Uh, that last hymn we just sang particularly. Now, if you've uh, been with us for a while, you know we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've decided to slow it down a bit, slower than we were already going, and really focus on this specific passage, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, for several weeks. Now, if you remember, uh, the way that Ephesians is structured um, is very simple. So the first half, chapters 1 through 3, establishes us the gospel message, what Christ has done for us. And chapters 4 through 6 now tells us what Christ is doing in us and through us by his word and by his spirit. So chapters 4 through 6 are the response. It's getting into kind of the practical ways that Christ in us works in the world. And if you pay particular attention to this passage that we've been going through the last several weeks, you'll notice that Paul is actually taking us back through the law of Moses. He's taking us back through the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, this is what you are supposed to do. So in that sense, it's nothing new, but in another sense, it is new, because as we've seen in chapters 1 through 3, we have something that ancient Israel didn't have when they received the Ten Commandments. We have Christ in us, at work, working these very things within us and giving us the power to work those things out in the world. So we come to this text with confidence. We come to this text actually embracing it as a glorious gospel vision for what Christ would have us see him do through us in the world. I pray that we receive it as that. Hear now the reading of God's word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, we confess that unless you build the house the workers labor in vain. Lord, we know that unless you speak through your word, the preacher preaches in vain. 
And unless you open up our ears and our hearts to receive your word, the listeners listen in vain. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and dwell among us, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart desirous to understand. Lord, we ask that you would transform us by these words into the glorious image of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to focus in on verse 28, which is really just uh, taking us back to the eighth commandment. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's the big idea. The big idea of this passage is unpacking the big idea of this whole section, which is that God in Christ is doing a redeeming work in us and in his world. He's taking things that were cursed and broken from the fall, and he's reworking those. He's refashioning those things into something fruitful and glorious. For us here today, we're going to see that he takes work and he redeems it from cursed labor to fruitful work. He takes money and material possessions that we have turned into an idol, and he redeems money and material possessions, and he turns it into a fruitful gift. And then he takes us, who are under the curse and sin of Adam, after the image of Adam, and he transforms us into the glorious image of Christ. That's what he's, that's what he's telling us here in this passage. Now, if you recall, the context of this is that Paul has just said that we're supposed to put off the old self, the one in Adam, and we're to put on the new self created after the image of Christ Jesus. And this verse here about how we work and about how we think about our money and our material possessions, it's a clear expression of what it looks like to be created anew in Christ Jesus. We're going to see that it's very countercultural. And it's very much counter to our sinful hearts. It's a beautiful vision of what the renewed life in Christ looks like. Now, like any good Presbyterian sermon, we have three points. So here we go. Point number one, we shouldn't steal because we were made to work. Point number two, we should work because we are called to give. And point number three, we're called to give because Christ gave himself for us. We're made to work. Or sorry, we shouldn't steal because we're made to work. We're made to work because we're called to give, and we're called to give because Christ gave himself for us. All right, let's talk about stealing. Hmm. So, I don't know about you, but when I think about stealing, I think about when I was five, and I went into Ingalls, and Ingalls has all of these buckets and baskets full of candy right out in the open. And I think what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to fill a bag with it and weigh it and then pay for it. But it was, it was right there, right in front of me. So clearly it was offering itself up for my hands to grab one and stow it away to enjoy later, which I did. But I enjoyed it only briefly. When I went home and I put this gumdrop in my mouth, I became very convicted. I took it out and I threw it into the bushes 
in great guilt. And then I went to my parents, bawling, telling them that I stole a gumdrop. And I remember my dad took me back to Ingalls, and I had to tell the person at the, the counter that I had taken this. I gave him a, uh, um, I think it was a quarter, which was actually more than that gumball was worth. Um, just bawling. I'm sure he was super confused about the whole thing. But that's what I think of when I think of stealing, right? Taking something that doesn't belong to you. And hopefully most of us have learned that um, we shouldn't be doing that. And hopefully we've kind of grown out of the impulse to take candy at the supermarket. But of course, if we think about it, that's not all that stealing is, right? Um, We all have a little thief in our human heart. If you've ever watched a heist movie like Ocean's Eleven and found yourself rooting for the thieves, or maybe if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean and wished you were a pirate. You know that there's, there's something in you that actually still, uh, still kind of wants to be a thief. And if you think about the nature of theft, you realize that we all are thieves in a lot of ways that we wouldn't want to recognize. I'm going to go quickly through a list of possible ways that we can be thieves. Some of this might ring true for you. Obviously, stealing people's money or property. That's a no-no. But what about time theft? Time theft. Maybe you have a job, and uh, maybe you waste a lot of time on the job not doing what you're being paid to do on the job. That's called time theft. Or maybe it's your free time, the time that God has given you, and you waste it. Wasting time, stealing time, valuable time from God that can't, we can't ever get back. What about stealing credit or honor that's not yours to have? Somebody thinks that you did something great, they tell you about it, and you have a choice to make. Do I let them know that wasn't me, or do I accept that from them anyway? Mm, Stealing credit. What about not paying back debts, slash not giving back what you borrowed? I am very convicted. I have books on my bookshelf that I borrowed back when I was in college and have not returned those, and I think at some point that just turns into theft. Um, And I can make the excuse that I don't even know some of those people's addresses anymore to send it back, but I also have Facebook, so I know that I could ask them and give them that book back. So maybe that's what I'll do this afternoon. What about uh, not reporting on our taxes, Uh, even the little bit? You know, there was a temptation when I was, I used to teach um, piano lessons, and I would get paid on Venmo. There's no paper trail there. It's not very much money. You don't get a lot of money from teaching piano lessons. Do I really have to report that to the government? Can that just kind of be under the table, cash only? I looked it up online. Yes. The government demands everything you get. Of course, there are other kinds of theft that go a little bit deeper into the human heart. What about covetousness? Stealing with our eyes, right? What about idleness? Wasteful spending or hoarding? Those last four things the Westminster Larger Catechism calls defrauding ourselves of what God has given us. God has given us things, and when we waste them, or when we hoard them, or when we wish we had things other than what He's given, we defraud ourselves, 
and ultimately God of the things that he's given to us. There are many ways that we can steal. But the bigger idea here is that everything ultimately is a gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. The admonition not to steal starts with the principle that everything we own is God's gift to us. Ultimately, he's the one who owns it, and he has given it to us for a purpose. The big idea here is that what God has not given to us, we shouldn't take. But also, what he has given to us, we should use it for the purpose he has given it to us for, for that purpose. So if God gives us something for a specific purpose and we don't use it for that purpose, we have stolen it from the Lord. Everything is a gift and a gift for a certain purpose. Now, this takes us to the concept of work. The way that God has designed the world is not that we should be takers, but that we should be workers. Now, while it's true that everything we have is a gift from God, God has designed us and the world such that work is one of the primary means through which He gives us things. It's not that we have over here what God has given to us, and then we have over here the stuff that we worked for and earned and is ours. No, it's all a gift. Either it's a gift that we didn't work for, or it's a gift that God has given us through our work. Either way, everything we have is a gift, and we're made to work in order to receive many of those gifts from God. That's what God has designed work for. Now, of course, that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, the original design of God's world. Now, Scripture tells us that for six days, God worked, and He fashioned a whole cosmos just by the word of His mouth. But then what's interesting is He kind of zooms in, and He creates this garden, this beautiful, lush, flourishing garden full of good food to eat, full of beautiful gemstones, full of water. It's verdant green, flourishing in every way. And then, metaphorically speaking, God puts his hands in the dirt. Scripture says he fashions a man out of dirt, and he breathes the breath of life into him, and that man becomes a living being, Adam. And Adam's name just means dirt, dirt man. So God fashions a man, and then he says, you have my image, which means now you work with your hands. I have fashioned a world, and I have made this flourishing garden for you. Now you go and use those hands and put them to work. Turn this whole world into a garden. Everything you see before you, I have given to you. Now go and work. Be fruitful in your work. And I've also given you a wife, Eve. Be fruitful with her. Have children. In every uh, command that God gives to Adam and Eve to work, every kind of work that they're given, it's ultimately for the purpose of fruitfulness, for the purpose of abundance, going beyond the work itself to, to uh, beautiful 
and fruitful human flourishing. What Tim Keller defines work as is rearranging the raw material of a domain to draw out its potential for human flourishing. Now, of course, that applies to the garden. That can apply to any work that we undertake. God has given us raw materials. And when we refashion it and remake it for the purpose of human flourishing, we're fulfilling what work was designed to do. Now, in the context of this this garden, in the context of utter gift, God enters into covenant with Adam and Eve. That's part of the work. Do these things, and you will be blessed. In fact, you will inherit eternal life. Here's your work. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That's your work. If you fulfill your task, then you will gain eternal life. Now, the wages that they would have gained if they had done the work, they're not wages that ultimately they earned. It was still a gift. Nobody can earn eternal life. It was still a gift, but it was a gift to be given as Adam and Eve were fulfilling their God-given tasks to work. Now, in the midst of that, God gave them a test, right? One thing. He said, everything I've given to you except one thing, the one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I have not given that to you. You know what Adam and Eve did? Did they work? No. They took. They stole. The first sin was a sin of theft. They took the one thing that had not been given to them because they did not trust God's process of provision. They wanted to circumnavigate the whole process. Not circumnavigate, circumvent. Although circumnavigating the process would have been interesting. They wanted to get around it. They didn't want to go through God's means of working to receive eternal life. They took it for themselves. And you know what happened? Instead of fruitfulness and blessing and flourishing, they brought on the word cur- world curse, death, and fruitlessness. And when God gathers Adam and Eve together to receive the curse that was rightfully theirs, he targets every part of the work that he had given. And he says, now that is going to be subject to futility and frustration. The work in the ground, futility and frustration, thorns and thistles. Childbearing, futility and frustration. All of those ways that would have been so fruitful now are under this curse of futility and frustration. And that's a curse that we still bear today. And you can see that when you reflect on the ways in which we often go about our work. We see that the way that we often think about work, the way that we often pursue work, is ultimately futile and frustrating. Let's think about it. Why do we work? Why do we work? Some people, we work for financial security. It's a scary world out there. No one's going to take care of you but yourself. You need to be provided for. Maybe you need a little bit extra, not just a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food on your plate, but you need savings, and you need retirement, and you need extra savings, and you need insurance on that, and on that, and on that, and on that. And we try to build as much financial security as possible to make ourselves feel like disaster cannot hit us. Ultimately, that's futile. 
Scripture talks about the man who builds massive barns, storehouses full of food so that he can sit back and he doesn't have to worry about what would happen if famine came. He's secure. But what happens? God visits him that very night and he says, for all of that security you think you have, I'm demanding your life right now. What good was all of that for that man? No, we know that there is no real security in wealth. We know that fortunes can change in a second. And even if we're able to build up a financial buffer to make us feel secure forever, at the end of the day, it's fruitless. All it does is guarantee our survival until we die. For what purpose beyond ourselves? Nothing. It's futile. What about our work for reputation and respect for the approval of other people? Whether it's the kind of work that we choose or the money that we gain from that work or the way that we do it, often we work because we want the reputation that comes from it. But we also know that reputation is fleeting and unstable. Listen to what the psalmist says. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see the light." Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You can get all the acclaim, all the reputation and respect you want from your work, and at the end of the day, you're going to die, and it won't mean anything. It gives you nothing beyond yourself. It's not fruitful. We could keep going. We work for ease and comfort. We work so that we don't have to keep working, which in and of itself is kind of funny. We work really hard so we don't have to work hard, right? And of course, we know that this task is futile. We know that the work just keeps on coming. We know that even when we've finally found that time of comfort and ease and relaxation that we wanted, something happens and it just doesn't give us the sort of soul rest that we were hoping for. There are a lot of miserable people on yachts right now. But even if you get all the ease and the comfort that you desire and you don't have to work anymore, what point is that? It's fruitless. It doesn't produce anything beyond what you yourself have given to yourself. And when you die, that's it. Here's one that really gets to the heart of the American ethos. We work for personal satisfaction. That's the American dream now. To find a job where you just feel ultimately satisfied. It's the thing that you were designed for. And it brings you this ultimate sense of meaning and purpose. Right? That's why we work. Well, most people don't find that job. And those people who do find what they think is a dream job, will soon find that it's still full of toil and work and curse and difficulty, and it's not ultimately fulfilling. Listen to what Ecclesiastes says. 
Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw another vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. As long as we strive after work for the sake of ourselves, it's ultimately fruitless. It's fruitless. It's cursed. It's vain. It's meaningless. It probably won't even give us what we think it will give us, but even if it does, it won't last, and it will be no good when we're gone. Often we approach work like the alchemists approached lead, trying to turn lead into gold, trying to extract from work what it was never designed to give us. This is a kind of theft, trying to take from work what it's not there to give. This is not why we work. But of course, the solution, if these are not the reasons why we work, the solution is obvious. We shouldn't work right? Is there any other reason to work than these things? If this is not what we should be doing, why work at all? Well, the passage gives us a glorious vision of why we work. Paul says, work so that you have something to give. This is point two. We should work because we are called to give. Dorothy Sayers, in her essay, Why Work, which is worth reading, she wrote it during World War II, reflecting on how the concept of work changed during the war. She says, the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others, that's work. The gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Now that's key in the service of others. Work is good. Work is valuable. We are designed to work. Work is intrinsically good in that way. But ultimately work is not designed as an end in itself. No, work has an end beyond itself. Work is good when it is fruitful, when it is in the service of others. Now, there are three aspects to the fruitfulness of work. We'll go through these quickly. The nature of the work itself can be fruitful. The mentality and manner in which we work can be fruitful. And the purpose for the wages that we gain can be fruitful. The nature of the work itself. Paul says we should do honest labor. The NIV translates that as doing something useful. The word there in Greek is agathos, which means good. Literally, it's do good work. That's what Paul says. Do good work. Work that is good. Now, we have to unpack a little bit what that means. Obviously, one of the things it means is that we shouldn't do sinful work. There are some, some kinds of work that are just sinful. I don't really need to explain to you what those are, but they are, and we shouldn't do those things. That would be bad. Don't do sinful work. But there's something more to this than that. There's an idea that there is some work that is more useful than other work. There is some work that is more fruitful than other work. In that sense, not all work is created equal. Now, this can be hard to receive, but 
I think we would all agree that if you just think about the work itself, the work that a nurse or a doctor does is more useful than the work that a professional athlete does. Now, it doesn't mean that it's sinful to be a professional athlete, and it doesn't mean that there isn't some good that's produced. I enjoy watching sports, so I'm very grateful that there are professional athletes. But I think we'd all have to agree that the entertainment that is produced by professional athletes is not as fruitful as the healing work done by a doctor or a nurse. Some work is more fruitful than other work. Uh, what John Calvin takes from this is uh, an aim, a goal, an ideal. All things being equal, we should choose those employments which yield the greatest advantage to our neighbor. That's what he says. All things being equal, choose those employments which yield the greatest advantage to our neighbor. Now that is countercultural. Often when we think about, what do I want to do? Now this could be a job, an eight to five job where you earn a paycheck, but it doesn't have to just be that kind of work. We all work in various ways and when we think about what work do I want to do, we might think, well, what's going to bring me the most personal satisfaction? Or what's going to bring me the most money? Or what's going to be the least amount of work for the most amount of gain? But what we're told here is that what if we first tried to pursue those kinds of work that yielded the greatest advantage to others? Now, that being said, we all know that not all of us have the opportunity and ability to choose from any job and choose the one that's most fruitful. A lot of us are in kinds of work that on the surface don't really seem like they do that much good. If you compare yourself to, you know, a nurse or a doctor and you look at your job and you think, well, yeah, mine's not as useful or fruitful as that. Does that mean my work is pointless? Does that mean that I'm not doing what Paul has told me to do? Well, there's two other ways that our work can be fruitful. The second is the mentality and the manner that we have toward our work. Scripture says a lot about the way that we do our work. Paul says here in this passage, work with your own hands. Put yourself to work. We're told in other places to work heartily as unto the Lord, working for God and not for men, to please Him, to work hard. We're told to do all things without grumbling and complaining. A lot of our work might cause us to grumble and complain, but the manner that we do our work, if we do it without grumbling and complaining, that is good. Scripture says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. There's a life verse for you right there. What's your calling and vocation in life? To mind your own business and to work with your hands. Scripture says a lot about how we do our work. It says a lot less about the specific things we're supposed to do, and a lot more about the way in which we do it. Fruitful labor is the kind of labor that we go at for God and not for men. 
where we work hard, not doing the easiest thing, not doing the bare minimum, but we do it hard in service of others with gratitude, with humility, with thankfulness, without grumbling and complaining. And here's the beautiful thing. Because work is good, even those inane tasks that sometimes you have to do, because work itself is good, if done in the right manner, it is fruitful work. It bears fruit in your own soul. And you have no idea how the Lord will use those things. Even the minuscule things, even the things that feel like they don't do anybody any good. You don't know how the Lord might use that. It's our job to look at the manner in which we do the work. It's the Lord's job to let that work be fruitful. But this leads us to the third kind of fruitfulness, which is something that Paul is very interested in, which is what we do with our wages. He says that we should work so that we have something to share for those in need. This is the driving point of the whole passage. God is redeeming the purpose of work by saying that it's not for ourselves, but it's for others. It's so that we might have something to share. Now, what we might be sharing could be the work itself. So if you think about, say, cleaning the house, you're not going to get paid to clean your own house. But that work can be done for the benefit of everybody else living in that house. Now, that's a hard work to do because things get dirty pretty much immediately after they're clean, even before that. So it can seem like futile work, but it's actually a great service to other people. And we all know what happens to our living spaces when they're not cleaned for weeks and weeks. Our whole life starts to deteriorate, body, mind, and soul. So the work itself can be in service of others. The work itself can be to share for those in need. But also, the wages of that work. If you do a job that earns you money, what's that money for? Now, this is where all of us might start to get a little uncomfortable. Because our natural tendency is, well, I worked and I earned that money, and that money's mine. I can do with it as I please. And God says, no. That money is a gift. That money is a gift that I've given you so that you might do my purposes for it. And Paul tells us here that one of the main purposes for that money is to share for those in need. It's important that we move beyond the concept that the only thing required of us to do with our money is to provide for those in our immediate family. Now, it is true that if you're working for your family, that your first priority with that money is to make sure that your family is provided for. But even the pagans do that. In fact, Scripture says that if anyone does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever because unbelievers provide for their own families. But Paul is saying we have to go beyond what unbelievers do with their money, simply providing for their family. They should provide for their family, but we are called to go beyond that to share with others in need. This actually takes us back to the Eighth Commandment, to not steal. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism 
lists the requirements that are attached to the Eighth Commandment. Notice what these requirements are. Very convicting. To give and lend freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. The requirement of the Eighth Commandment is to give and lend freely. Another requirement of the Eighth Commandment, to endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and estate of others as well as ourselves. The requirement is to preserve, protect, and further the wealth of others as well as ourselves. That's part of what we're commanded by the Eighth Commandment. Deuteronomy even talks about this. If anyone among you, one of your brothers, should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. God is calling us to be generous, to be radically generous, in fact, which gets us to the tricky impediments that we have for giving. There are a lot of impediments for giving, but it all comes down to one ultimate lie, the falsehood that we believe, the falsehood, the lie that even Adam and Eve believed in the garden, that God is not trustworthy and will not provide. What I have is mine and I have to provide for myself because God won't do it for me. And we're convinced, we're convinced by our culture that you only should give after you have everything in your own life secure. And we're not talking about just having a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food on your plate, but you need to have insurance for everything and you need to have savings for everything. And once you have budgeted yourself to such a great place of security, then if you have anything left, sure, you can give that away to somebody in need. That's not the biblical vision. Notice what Psalms and Proverbs says. These are the wisdom books. The wisdom books say that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I have been young and now I am old, and I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Proverbs says, one gives freely and yet grows richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So here's the truth. The truth is that God will provide for his people. He will always provide for his people. He's been doing it since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden. His disposition is to give and to provide and to bless. And he has given us these resources so that we might give, trusting him that when we are generous, God will take care of us. And in fact, when we open wide our hands to our brothers and sisters and we give to them who are in need, when we are in need, the Lord will give to us through them. And instead of having an economy that's built on my work, my money, my provision for myself, God has built a new economy, 
an economy of gift and gratitude, one where we depend on each other and we depend on the Lord, and we are blessed. That is the vision that God has given us. And of course, we see this because Christ himself has shown us the pattern. And this is the final point, very quickly. We're called to give because Christ has given himself for us. You know, Christ is called the second Adam because he fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam could not fulfill. And notice how he did it. In the desert, Satan comes to him and Satan tempts him to steal in three ways. Satan comes to Christ and he says, hey, those stones, turn them into bread and take it for yourself. And Jesus says, it is my bread to do the will of the Father and God will provide for me. He refused to take what God had not given. Satan takes him up onto a mountain so he can see all the kingdoms of the world, which in reality are what Christ has come to take back. They are what he's going after. But Christ knows that in order to get those kingdoms of the world, he must do his earthly work first. And Satan says, you can circumvent that. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Take them for yourself. Now, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus doesn't do it because he knows he has to earn that from his work and it will be given to him at the proper time. Satan takes him to the temple. He says, jump off. The angels will catch you. You'll declare to everyone your glory. You'll, you're the son of God. Everyone will know your God and they will worship you when they see the angels catch you. And Jesus refuses because even though he is God and he is worthy of worship, that's not his mission. Philippians says that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he let it go. He became a servant because he knew that it was through his work, his earthly ministry, fulfilling that, that God would then give him the name that is above every name. And that's exactly what happened. Christ submitted himself to the work. He refused to take what was not his to take. And after he completed his work on our behalf, when he was on the cross, when his hands were opened wide, nailed to the cross, he was giving himself for us. And when he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, having completed the work, then you know what? He was seated at the right hand of God and given all the glory and the honor of the Son of God. He was given all the kingdoms of the earth, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him because he had done the work. And you know what he does? He has now given that to us. He's given us the kingdom. And he has said, you are now laborers in my kingdom. Go and work. Go and work and be like me. And we're confident that this is true because as Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is our confidence. Christ has given himself for us and now he is giving us all things. We are called an imitation of him to be laborers in his vineyard.
to work with our hands and to open wide our hands in generosity and in gratitude because Christ has died for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful truth. We thank you that you have given yourself for us. You've died and you have risen and you've given us the kingdom. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful laborers doing fruitful work in the service of others, that you would give us generous hands and generous hearts, knowing that you will provide for our every need. Amen.